Uh, my name is Brady. I'm one of the pastors here. And I wanted to wish you all a happy new year. And I wanted to start off the new year by letting you know that uh, New Year's Eve is one of the two worst nights of the year. It is. And I want to tell you why. Uh, the, the other one is Valentine's Day. Okay. And here, here's why. Here's why. Just, just bear with me. It's because every person that has a significant other, a spouse, someone to go on a date with, you can do that anytime you want. Anybody who loves someone else, you can tell them that anytime you want. You can buy them a card on another day. You can buy them flowers on another day. You can celebrate them in any way, shape, or form on any day, okay? You don't need a special day to do that. But for every person that doesn't have a significant other, uh, who maybe has just gone through a breakup or fill in the blank, whatever, man, Valentine's Day is the worst, right? Because it's not just that you don't have anybody and your life is lonely and awful and depressing. It's that everybody else does. Right? Same thing with New Year's Eve. What happens at midnight? What are you supposed to do? At midnight, what are you supposed to do? Whoa, we're in church, people. Yeah, you're supposed to kiss someone. And if you have someone to kiss... Oh, it's just so beautiful and amazing. Kissing someone at midnight is exactly like kissing them at noon in October. Okay? But if you don't have someone to kiss, it's awkward and you don't really know what to do and everybody else, ah, what am I doing? It's just, it's awful, okay? Okay, so, so we're going to ban New Year's Eve and we're going to ban Valentine's Day at Mosaic Church. No, it's not going to happen. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure there, there are great ways to do these kind of things. But, but the reason I even say that is because I wanted to relate that to our spiritual life. And here's the thing. Some of us, if not all of us, at one point in our lives have experienced difficulty in our relationship with God. God has seemed distant. Uh, maybe we've been overcome by shame and guilt. Maybe we've been running from God. Who knows what or why? But for some reason, it's been difficult. It hasn't been all uh, butterflies and daisies and roses and, and, and rainbows, right? It's been hard. It's been heart-wrenching. Perhaps you've been searching and longing, calling out and crying out to God, and you just don't feel anything. You can't hear anything. And you know that intimacy with God is so important. And then when you look at other people, Maybe people in your friend circle, maybe uh, the great heroes of the faith that are, you know, throughout the pages of Scripture. Maybe you look at the great men and women of church history, and you see uh, these, these people have this intimate relationship with God, and it is actually discouraging to you. I, I used to be a musician. I played the guitar. And when I would go to a concert, I would have one of two reactions. Either I would go to the concert, and it would be great. I'd be excited. Uh, the people playing on stage would inspire me, and I would think, I can do this. I can be there. So I would leave early, and I'd go home and practice. Or I would go to a concert, and there'd be somebody playing the guitar, and they would just be a ninja on the guitar. Just legit, unbelievable. Mouth would drop. And so I would leave the concert early and quit playing music. I quit a number of different times because I knew I could never be there. I could never get to that level. I couldn't transcend where I was no matter how much effort I put in, no matter how much work I put in, no matter how many hours I put in, no matter how many instructors I had, I could never get there. I don't know if you've heard the legends of Martin Luther. I think he prayed 25 hours a day. That's, that's what people say. They say things like, like he prayed four hours a day. 
He's quoted as saying that, that one time he said, um, when I have a lot going on in the day, I have to pray an extra hour or I'll never get it done. Okay, did you, I, I don't know if you heard the, the, the key words there, extra hour. Do you know how long an hour is? Praying for an hour but this is an extra hour. This is on top of the other hours that he would already pray. That's amazing. But that's not what my prayer life looks like. And I tell you what, when I feel distant from God, when I don't feel close, those kind of things make it worse a lot of times because I think, that's not me. I'll never be there. And so because of this, we decided to do something unique this weekend, something different this weekend. We, we, instead of, as a teaching team, getting together and preparing the messages together, which we typically do and uh, give something that's fairly similar, we, we decided to take this topic of, of difficulty connecting with God or difficulty finding intimacy with God and just go our separate ways. Uh, each of the communicators do something different. We had three different communicators communicate at Oakland this weekend. Uh, and, and our encouragement to you, because this is such a personal thing, is to podcast all of them. Uh, I got to listen to Renault. It was great. Joel's was great today. I encourage you to listen to both of those. And hopefully, between the three of us, you'll find something that, that really speaks to your heart and the difficulties that you experience. And hopefully there'll be something that will help you through that. So in 2017, uh, with all your other goals that you have going on, that 2017 would be a banner year for you of connecting with God. That we as a church, as a community, would be intimate with God, would be connected with God, would be drawn near to Him. I want that for you so deeply. When I was growing up, uh, I had a great dad, great dad. Uh, he, he loved me dearly. And whenever I'd do something awesome, uh, which was rare, uh, but whenever I would succeed in, in school or athletics, uh, whenever I would get some sort of a, a award or an accolade, he was the first person that I would run to because I knew my dad. I knew that when I ran to him, he'd be there with open arms ready to scoop me up, throw me up in the air and celebrate me uh, like, like nobody else. He was the first person I wanted to see. It was so great. I knew anytime I succeeded, he was the guy to go to. But on the flip side, when I did something wrong, he was the opposite of that. Now, it wasn't because my dad was a bad dad that he abused me physically or emotionally. It wasn't that at all. It's just that he was the disciplinarian of our family. It, when, when, when something would go wrong with the kids, when the kids... Uh, disobeyed or lied or whatever, he was the guy that would discipline us. And, and for most people, that's probably just normal. But as a kid, I was a very sensitive kid. Um, I don't know where all my sensitiveness went, but, but as a kid, I was very sensitive. Uh, and, and if you just looked at me wrong or just said you were disappointed in me, I would melt. I, it, was, it was over. I was done. But a lot of times I would get disciplined the same way as my brother, who you could do whatever you wanted to him. He would never change right? You, you, you know what I'm talking about. Every family has one. If your family doesn't, it's you. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? But for me, it was awful. And I just have, I just have this natural guilty conscience. I always think I've done something wrong. So anytime my dad would say, hey, you want to chat? I'm like, no, no, I don't want to chat. Those are awful. I'm going to get punished. Something's going to go wrong. And so what I, I found was this dual side of me thinking towards my dad. When I would uh, succeed, run to my dad. But when I would fail, when I would disobey, when I would sin, man, I would run from him, 
hide from him, conceal my sin from him, because I was afraid of what he would do, what he would think of me, how disappointed he would be, uh, what kind of punishment would come after that. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can't. But when I look at Scripture and I think about my relationship with God, it's very similar to that. Uh, if you've ever read through the Gospels, there are, there are four Gospels, uh, and they're the uh, authoritative accounts that we have of Jesus' life. Uh, if you ever read through them in a sitting or in, in, a, in, a, in a short time period, you'll see a number of themes just jump out at you. And one of them is this idea of obedience versus disobedience, that Jesus talks a lot about being obedient. He says, hey, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If... You love me if there's relationship, if there's closeness, if there's intimacy, if there's a relationship between us, then you will obey. He says, how can you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? It it doesn't make sense for you calling me Lord, Lord with your mouth, but then going and living a different way, acting a different way. It doesn't make sense. It's incongruent. It doesn't work. You can't say Lord and then act a different way. It doesn't work. Uh, you'll hear, see this uh, phrase a lot of times in Scripture, let him who has ears, let him hear. And that may have confused you. It confused me for the longest time. That's a Jewish idiom. Uh, we have a lot of idioms uh, sitting here in this room. No, we have a lot of idioms in English. And, and what that is, an idiom is a phrase in English that if you translated it word for word into a different language, it wouldn't make sense. So let's blow this popsicle stand. Anyone know what that means? Let's get out of here. If, if, if you change that to, I don't know, Spanish or French or whatever, uh, you would have, you know, an arson on your hands, okay? But uh, the whole nine yards, okay, that's another idiom. If you translated that, people wouldn't understand what that means. So in, in, uh, in Hebrew, uh, let him who has ears, let him hear. What that means is listen and obey. So Jesus would give this great teaching. He would say, now, everyone listen and put it into practice, And what we see in Jesus is this idea that obedience will draw us closer to God and disobedience or sin will drive a wedge in between you and God. Paul says it, he says it a little bit differently, but he talks about sowing to the spirit, which is walking in obedience, or sowing to the flesh, which is walking in disobedience, which is living in sin. Uh, John says it, he talks about walking in the light. Walking in the light is being obedient. It's sowing to the spirit or walking in darkness, which is sowing to the flesh, which is walking in sin, right? John, in fact, says in, in, in 1 John chapter 1, he says, if you say you have fellowship with the Father and yet walk in the darkness, you lie and do not practice the truth. I mean, you can't, you're just not beating around the bush. Like, that's legit. What we find is that when you're living in obedience, that is drawing you uniquely near to God. But when you live in disobedience, sin is driving a wedge in between you and your relationship with God. Now, just quick poll. Anyone here ever not sinned in your life? Okay. What about 2016? 20, anyone? This past week. Anybody done this? Okay. So we have a room full of sinners, okay? A room full of people that have walked in disobedience very recently, which obviously means there's a wedge between you and God. What do you do? And, and if, in fact, God is the righteous judge, which Scripture talks about him as, he's the guy you run from when you sin because he's righteous and you're not because you have fallen, you have failed, you have rebelled against him. 
I think so often we can think of things that way. Um, our first parents, Adam and Eve, we see this in their story. Why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 3. God creates this beautiful world and he creates humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. He puts them in a garden uh, to, to live and work the garden and to enjoy relationship with one another, enjoy relationship with creation, enjoy relationship with him. And then the serpent comes in, right? The serpent comes in, it's, it's the devil, uh, it's the enemy, it's Satan. He comes in and he tricks them. He says, hey, um, God didn't know what he's talking about. I want you to indulge in all these desires that you have to eat from this, this fruit, from this tree. And then you're going to gain wisdom. You're going to be just like God. And they're like, oh, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. They ate the fruit. And immediately sin entered into their bodies. It entered into this world. And here was the reaction that happened. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. This had never happened in the history of the world. They hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was afraid of you. Because I was naked and I hid myself. Man, I can't imagine what the Father, what God experienced in that moment. And I don't know how God experiences things you know, differently than we do, but I know if that was me, you have this great relationship with, with your creation and now all of a sudden, they're afraid of you and they're hiding from you. But that's what happened. And, and, I, and I get it because that's what I do. I conceal. I try and conceal my sin so no one knows. No one can see. And then I run and hide from the one who's going to judge me. Run and hide from the one who is holy, who is righteous. And the enemy is brilliant in the way that he, he continues to deceive us and trick us into this. Not just into sin, not just to in, in, indulging in our desires, but then to concealing our sin. And then to running and hiding from God. I get it. But there's this guy uh, who takes up a giant chunk of the, the Old Testament. His name is David. Uh, he fought Goliath. Uh, same guy becomes king over all of Israel. And David is called a man after God's own heart. Man, I hope, man, I would love for that to be what people say about me. He was a man after God's own heart. David, if you don't know anything about David, he is worth learning about. He was a warrior, a legit warrior. He was a poet. He played instruments. He sang. He danced. He did it all. He was king over all of Israel. And he was a man after God's own heart. But David got into some serious trouble, didn't he? Um, David was, was in his uh, palace, and it says that he was in his palace when kings go out to war. So you know already, uh-oh, he's, he, he's already doing something he's not supposed to. He let everyone else go out and fight for him, the king over all. And he instead went around and was admiring his kingdom. And there was this woman bathing on the top of a roof. And so he, he had an affair with her. And then she got pregnant and so he now panics and says, okay, what are we going to do? I know, we're going to have your husband killed so that no one's going to find out about the sin that happened. 
And then for a while, nothing happens. And in that, in that culture, and it's, it's hard to understand, uh, they, they lived in an honor-shame culture. We don't. And so we experience more internal guilt and more internal shame. They experience more public guilt and shame. So unless you had public guilt and shame, you didn't typically feel the internal as much as we do. Just because it, it, it's a very cultural thing that we experience. So David, it's likely that him as the king, as the boss, overall, you kind of see his mindset he's having right now, a little bit blinded and clouded by sin, probably doesn't really think he's done that, anything that bad until Nathan the prophet comes to him. And the reason you think he probably doesn't think anything of it is because of his reaction after Nathan comes to him. Nathan the prophet, he comes to him, tells him this story. David gets furious and then he said, oh yeah, that story's about you. You're the one who did this. And then, and then David panics. Not, not, not in, a, in a like, oh no, what I do? But he freaks out because he realizes who he is. He realizes what he has done. He realizes the sin he has lived in, the adultery, the murder, that it's not okay. But it's crazy what he does next. Instead of continuing to conceal his sin, Instead of running and hiding from God, he does the exact opposite. Why don't you turn to Psalm 51? This is the, the prayer David prays after uh, his sin is confronted. And here's what he says in Psalm 51, verse 1. He says, have mercy on me, O God. First thing, he turns to God. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Skip to verse seven. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take, me, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You want to know what the amazing thing about this is? This was a thousand years before Jesus ever came. This is a thousand years before Jesus came, lived a sinless life, took our sin when he died on the cross and raised to new life. David, instead of running from God, ran towards God. Instead of concealing his sin, he exposed it to God in confession. Because David knew something about the unchangeable character of God that we see so beautifully portrayed in the person of Jesus it's not that God was angry in the Old Testament and happy in the New Testament. It wasn't two different gods. David knew God so deeply as a man after his own heart, and he knew that in sin, he needed to run towards God. But this is so against what we, what we would want to do naturally. I don't want to run to the one who is my judge when I'm, when I'm the one who's offended him because I'm afraid. 
afraid of what, what he'll do. I'm afraid of the consequences, afraid of what he'll think, afraid of the disappointment. I want to cover up the guilt and the shame inside. And what we see is the enemy, brilliant, tricking us into sinning. Man, indulge in your desires. It'll be awesome. It'll be great. It'll be exciting. It'll be fun. It'll be good, beneficial. Do it. And we're like, okay, yeah. And, and, then, and then he's like, now, run from God. Run from God. Hide it. Don't let anyone see. Don't let anyone see. Hide it. Hide it. Run, run, run. What's he going to do? He's mad at you. He hates you. His wrath is going to come down on you. And that's what we do. Because if you're anything like me, Here's the way that I used to look at God and my relationship with him. I, I used to think that God, in his love, created me as a sports car. An amazing sports car, a beautiful sports car. And sports cars have one reason for existing and one reason only. What is that? To impress women. No, no, it's not. It's, not. it's to go fast. You were right. It's you're right. To go fast. Okay, so now God has created me as a car that was intended to go fast, right? The intention of me living and existing is to go fast. And then God has given me this long stretch of road, this wide stretch of road. It's freshly paved. It is perfect for going fast. He's put on some new tires that are, that are, that are perfect for going fast. They will grip the road just right and then God puts a 10 mile per hour speed limit sign. He sits there in a cop car just waiting to get me going one mile hour over the speed limit to get me a ticket, to put me in the car, arrest me, to put me before the judge, to be the plaintiff against me, to accuse me, to be the prosecuting attorney. And then me, Jesus is the prosecuting attorney. God's the, the judge. What am I to do? I've got nothing to say, nothing to speak. I'm the one that's failed. I'm the one that sinned. I get it. And this judge... This judge, he's holy, so he's nothing like me. He's righteous. He's never done anything wrong. He's completely and utterly perfect, so he can't relate to me. He's just, which means he doesn't let evil slip by, so he's going to throw the book at me. See, that's the way that, that I used to look at God. But it's not what we see. Turn to 1 John, if you will. It's towards the end of your Bible, right near Revelation. It's after 2 Peter, 1 John, chapter 1. Men and women, this is beautiful. In verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And I love this. There's no but there, but it feels like there should be. Verse 9, but... However, if, if we confess our sins, right? If we expose our sins, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you hear that? That's not even the best part. Chapter two, verse one, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know who your number one fan is? And you know who your number one defender is? 
It's Jesus. I do believe that God created me as a sports car with the intention of making me go fast. And then he gave me this long stretch of road, this wide stretch of pavement, freshly paved, new tires. And when he was creating me, he knew, I want this car to go 100 miles per hour. I want it to go fast. And so I'm going to create it to go 100 miles per hour. And in his love, he puts a speed limit sign of 100 miles per hour because he knows that if I go faster than that, it's dangerous for me and it's dangerous for other people. That the chassis gets loose and things could go haywire and I will get hurt and other people will get hurt. And so he, out of love, says, don't go faster than 100 miles per hour. That's what I created you to do. That's how fast I created you to go. And then he puts warning signs all over the road. Be careful. Warning. Slow down. Be careful. Warning. Danger. Be careful. And then instead of sitting there in a cop car, he's in an ambulance knowing that I'm going to fall, knowing that I'm going to fail, knowing that I'm going to go too fast, that I'm going to disobey, that I'm going to rebel, that I'm going to sin. And he is going to be the first one there to pick me up, to dust me off, to bring healing to my life. And when you see 1 John in the law court metaphor, you find out that Jesus is not our accuser. The enemy is our accuser. We see that in scripture that night and day he's before the father accusing the brethren, right? He just tricked me into sinning and now he's accusing me, telling me, telling God that I failed, I've sinned, I've rebelled, that I'm no good, I'm not worth it. He's the one accusing me and the one defending me is Jesus Christ, the righteous, who says, no, I paid for him. I paid for him with my blood. His name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He has my righteousness. See, on the cross, Jesus got our sin and we got his righteousness. And I tell you what, there's this uh, movie called Walk the Line about Johnny Cash. And there's this moment in the movie, he's in a recording studio recording a song. And it's a, it's a cover of a song that you know, people have done before and the producer says, says it sounds fine, but I've heard it. It's just like everybody else that has done it. So what? And, and you know, Johnny's not liking that. And, and the producer says, hey, here's what I want you to do. If you were lying in a ditch, dying, and you had three minutes left to live, you had enough time to sing one song, just one song, what would that song be? And he gets up and, and you know, records that song. And I tell you what, if the same scenario was true for me, and I just had one message to give you. One thing to say before I died, this is it. Sin will absolutely drive a wedge between you and the Father, so don't. Run from sin. Flee from sin. Don't walk in the darkness. Don't sow to the flesh. Sow to the Spirit. Walk in the light. And when you do, He's your number one fan. He is your absolute biggest fan to enjoy with you and celebrate with you walking in the light. But when you walk in the darkness, when you rebel against God, when you do sin, he is the first person you call. He's the first person you run to because he is your advocate, because he paid it all, all to him I owe. 
because you are righteous in his sight. You are holy in his sight because of the blood of Jesus. So we, followers of Christ, run to him in our successes. And we, followers of Christ, we run to him in our failures because he loves us so much, waiting to scoop us up, pick us up, heal us, set us free, and be our advocate before the judge, saying he or she is my son or daughter. It blows me away. The God that we get to serve My hope for us in 2017 is that we as a community would get this and that we would just run to God every single day throughout the day, no matter what's going on. Tell him that the silliest details of our day because he cares. Tell him about our successes and come to him in confession, exposing our sin, not hiding, but running to him in our failures because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there is no end to the great loving kindness of our God. Like David in Psalm 51, let us run to God. We need him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are not words to express the gratitude that has got to be overcoming us as we ponder these truths of your great love, of your great character, of your mercy, your grace, your compassion. Father God, thank you so much that you love us so epically. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he lived a sinless life and yet took our sin, all of our sin upon himself and paid the penalty gave us his righteousness so that we might be able to walk in intimacy with you in our failures and in our successes. I pray that you would protect us from the schemes of the enemy that wants to drive a wedge in between us. I pray that we would walk in the light and I pray that when we don't, we would run to you as well. I pray that 2017 would be a banner year for us in our intimacy with you. We ask these things in the powerful and beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.